Welcome to Reenchanting, the podcast from Seen and Unseen. I'm Justin Briley. And I'm Val Tindall. And we bring you interesting guests to talk about the way in which we can reenchant a secular material culture with the Christian vision of reality. Yes. And today we are joined by Dr. Martin Shaw. The magnificent Dr. Martin Shaw, uh, who is, I'm going to give you a nice big bio now. Some people love this, some people hate it, but <laughs> it's a renowned storyteller and mythologist who in the last couple of years has had his own quite extraordinary story to tell. And after many years as a poet, an author and a teacher of others in the West Country School of Myth, Martin has had an encounter that confounded all of his expectations. Uh, you've told this story to me a few times now, Martin. I hope you won't mind repeating at least some elements of it uh, on today's programme. But uh, in many ways, uh, your journey is a, is a homecoming. That's the way you've described it as well. Um, so we're looking forward to hearing that story, but also something that you're working on at the moment, which is the idea of Christianity understood as a dream. So we're going to mm. try and get to all of these things in the course of our conversation. Welcome along to the show. Thank you for having me. And we are, of course, here, as ever, at the top of Lambeth Palace Library. You've, you've been able to look outside. It's a bit of a, a cold, drab sort of day, but very it, London. it doesn't take away from the, the grandeur of the yeah, surroundings. It's Dickensian. It very is, good. isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I, I said Mary Poppins earlier. Oh, right. that's, that's what it reminds me of when I look out at that skyline. Yeah. But anyway, um, well, we always begin with the same question. Um, because we're at the top of Lambeth Palace Library. What are you currently reading, Martin? Ah, well, I would imagine, like a lot of your guests, I'm reading a few things at the same time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I am reading, and I'm always reading it, really, a book called The Way of the Pilgrim, which is a mid-19th century Russian book. It's a novel that was found on Mount Athos and then sort of entered the West. And it's the story of a young Russian Christian who becomes really fixated with the notion of pray without ceasing. Mm -hmm. And it's the Jesus prayer, which in orthodoxy we use a lot. And it's really the story of all his travails and trouble, trying to find out what that could possibly mean. So that's book number one. I'm sure we've had a guest who was reading that book yeah, in probably. our first season. I can't recall who it was now. No. Yes. But, yeah. What I'm pleased to say is it's out of copyright. So uh, I will be working on a, on a new translation with a oh, friend excellent. of mine for next year. Excellent. So watch this space. Uh, and I suppose along with that, uh, we have, there's a book called the Philokalia, which is a sort of collection of teaching, patristic teachings and other stuff that, that you know, we, we're big fans of the Bible, uh, <laughs> but we have the Philokalia as well. So in orthodoxy. So I've been reading that and actually... Have you ever read Moby Dick? Yes. I, I'm never as well read as How did as you Belle. get on with it? Well, I did it in school, and I'm not sure that's the best context in no. which to read Moby Dick. I feel like I should do it again yeah. for pleasure as opposed to feeling like it's being forced upon me um, because, I don't know, mixed feelings. Yeah, it's like a it's like a, a men's breakfast gone mad. You know, it really is. It's it's this extraordinary story of really the dark side of enchantment, being yeah. enchanted by a whale, mm. being yeah. uh, there's a chap called uh, Captain Ahab, I think, mm -hmm. who's on the boat with his crew searching the world for for a whale that has wronged him, Moby Dick. Right. It's a phenomenal story. It is oppressively masculine. Mm -hmm. So it's a kind of a one-shot thing. As soon as I've got out of this, I'm just going to read Virginia Woolf for a year, I promise. But as a, as a sort of heart of darkness story, yeah, it's yeah. very interesting. I mean, I often read it before I'm going to a sleep and various other figures in my mind Bishop Barron has become Captain Ahab. Oh, and, interesting. Um, N.T. Wright is a chap called, uh, <laughs> he's called Steel Kilt, and things like these various characters. I love the fact around. that the whole of the crew is made up of theologians and New Testament historians. Well, they're, out, yeah. there on the, they're out there on the green teeth of the sea looking for things that other people tell you don't exist. So. <laughs> Excellent. I love so that's me with yeah. the radio. You have made me want to go back and relook at that now. I would love to talk to you about it somewhere down the line and see what you think. I, I go yeah. hot and cold with it, but okay, as yeah. a writer, mm. as a writer, it yeah. is astonishing piece of work. It's up there with um, Ulysses by James Joyce oh. and mm. probably Homer's Odyssey. Uh, and Gosh. in my mythological world, you don't get much yeah. better than that. Yeah, Amazing. that is high praise. Can I ask you a question that I imagine you have spent your entire life answering so i'm almost apologetic just bring it <laughs> just bring it on bring it. what exact well it's the question's a bit twofold 
what exactly is a myth as opposed to just a really rich story? What's the difference? And then therefore, what is a mythologist? Oh, good question. Oh, you're very gracious to make out like that was an original question. <laughs> well, it's the right time of day to ask me because the trouble with Zoom and things like that, people often ask me that at midnight from America yes. and I'm not so charitable. <laughs> yeah, okay. But I'm caffeinated and I'm ready. There we go. Uh, so let's think about this. I would say what constitutes a myth very simply is a sacred story. So in oh, other words, okay. it's a story that's not just for uh, kicking a you know, kicking a, a football down the road. It's a story that you can organise your life around. And myths, as opposed to fairy tales or folk tales, often have something to do with creation in them. How mm. did we get here? What do we long for? How do we cope with disappointment? All that existential stuff. Myths go down the deep end. They are beautiful stories without the use of facts. Uh, they tell deeper truths usually than the facts of the matter. And I recognised even when I was very young that things would happen to me, you know, your first heartbreak, the first time you fall in love. Talking about it on the surface of things does no justice to the absolute deficit that you're staggering around. Yeah. So myths for me are deep, sacred stories that you can, you can organise, you can hang your heart on them. Yeah, that's what I, the, that's how I'd say. The problem, of course, is that myth has, in many circles, taken on a pejorative yeah. sort of nature. So when often when I've interacted with atheists and skeptics over the years, they use it to mean basically irrational, untrue fairy tale. That's it's a, it's essentially been a stand-in for those sorts of words. Yes, I mean, obviously, you're using my favourite words. <laughs> so uh, not the untrue <laughs> bit, though. Okay, that's the untrue. This is what I would say: myth is a wild way of telling the truth. Okay. Myth is a wild way of telling the truth. Now, as we go on, maybe we'll get into a little bit of what's different about Christianity and why would someone with the treasury of myth that I've been exposed to for 30 years, why would I make this terribly difficult decision yes. to go yeah. down this particular road? But a mythologist, to come back to it, yeah. is somebody that is not just a storyteller but explores the stories on all their different layers, from a psychological to a, a cultural layer. Uh, I taught at Stanford for a long time in uh, California, on and off over 10 years. And that's your, your, it's a kind of exegesis. It's a kind of opening the stories up. But what you have to be careful about at the same time is don't tell a story what it is. The moment mm. that you do that, You've shot the bird out of the sky. Every time I see a storyteller who then says, and what the tale means is, <laughs> if it's too allegorically heavy, you've got a pamphlet, not a story. Right. Uh, so that's what I'm trying right. to avoid. So a lot, is it a, lot, a lot of it is about, or the power of it is about what to leave unexplained, what to leave omitted, what, to, what gaps to leave so that people can uh, be a part of the meaning-making process yeah. of receiving a myth. In myth, especially in, in the storytelling of myth, you have what you call the sense and the matter. Now, the matter of the story is the A to B to C, mm. but the sense of it is mm. the genius of the teller to know what to flesh out yeah. and what to leave dormant. Uh, and you normally don't know until you're in the Petri dish of the experience, and mm -hmm. then you make these split-second mm. decisions. But what's so amazing about oral storytelling is that actually, if I'm doing my job well, I will give you very little mm. because I want your imagination to do the hard labour. And that's the problem a little bit with, with the Netflix culture and yeah. the movies. They're wonderful things, but if I can kind of keep free, if I keep freeze-framing John the Baptist, after a while when I'm reading the Bible, up pops yes. that version it, it of it. It fixes yeah. a certain version of a story. I, I mean, I... I I've, I think I said this before on this podcast, but when I first read the Harry Potter stories, they sort of, you know, I guess they were my story. This, when the movies did it, suddenly it imposed that version of the story on my psyche. So that now when I read Harry Potter, I'm thinking of Daniel Radcliffe, not the, oh, the yeah, version. So, so it's, it's, it's a difficult one, isn't it? Because we love, obviously, the way that we can tell the stories in the modern day. But do you think we've lost something in our modern culture? about, I don't know, just something about storytelling that, that we, 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 we've lost it with unmodern ways of telling. Yes. Do you know what? We've, we've retained 
personal narrative. So in every family, there's somebody that's good at telling the stories of their family. There's an mm. aunt or an uncle, mm. you know. So I was on tour in Ireland, and one of the things that you notice uh, is that everybody uh, is a raconteur. Everybody uh, has the gift of making quite magical something that happened on the way to the bus that morning. Now, in a, in a mythically literate culture, you would be able to take a personal anecdote, maybe something that's quite difficult, and you can see how the wingtip of that experience touches a myth or a fairy tale. could be the story of David and Goliath. Mm. But mm. in one way or another, stories help us reach out to the universe. They, they orientate us and they settle us. But if all you've got is me, if the only temple you serve in is the one that you gaze in mm. all day long, mm. those stories are going to get awfully thinned out. So you end up with a sort of a, a facsimile or a photocopy of something. 200 years ago, a new story arriving mm. was an event yeah. in a village. Mm. And the storyteller would come and go, and then you, we'd all have to remember it. <laughs> yeah. And we'd all remember it slightly differently. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, I, um, my background and my when I get to sort of my geeky sweet spot is New Testament, John in particular. Oh. And of course, I've immersed myself. I'd never thought of myths and myth making and myth reception. But of course, that's a completely orally literate culture, yeah. a totally different way of um, crafting, telling, receiving, memorizing stories. It's so beautiful because it touches almost like sites of remembrance That's it. that you can't do with words, that you literally have to leave gaps for, for people to do that. No storyteller would have got through the Gospel of Mark without going, that's a storyteller. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. and then, and then, and then, and with all the Gospels, as I, I think I said this before, Justin, what's so amazing about them is they have postcodes. Yep. They have addresses. Yeah. They're not floating off in some Gnostic universe. Mm -hmm. They're the trouble is here. It's by this lake. It's by this village. And that's very much, Tom Waits says, a song needs an address. <laughs> a song needs an address to anchor it. Yeah. And stories do too. That's the gold in all stories is when you have a tree or a river that isn't just universal, it's site-specific. Mm. Yeah. And yet somehow that very site-specific story has obviously been universalized it, yeah. it has gone well beyond its original postcode and, and been sort of engaged interpreted and understood by people of many different generations cultures and places well there we have it you know the great commission off yeah, it goes off it goes yeah look it's interesting hearing you talk about this way about the bible because you were familiar with the christian story i guess from a relatively young age i think you grew up yeah. in a christian family but you didn't necessarily call yourself a Christian until relatively recently. No, I absolutely did not call myself a Christian. <laughs> I wouldn't have dreamed of calling myself a Christian. Do you mind telling the story? No, I, absolutely. I mean, uh, so I grew up in a, actually a pretty healthy church. It's a Baptist church, Upton Vale, down in Torquay in Devon. It's still going, mm. packed houses. But it was a church where a lot of the drama was taking place in the pulpit, not the altar. I was not really aware of a contemplative tradition. I didn't really know what saints were. Monks were something from Robin Hood. <laughs> and really everything was, um, as I said, sort of sermon orientated. The charisma of the, of the teacher had mm. a lot to do with mm. it. Mm. And I could see that that was working for the adults in the room, but I would have this fantasy that, you know, the window would be burst open, Aslan would come in, create <laughs> mayhem, and some fresh air would come into the place. So my father, who was and is a terrifically good preacher, my brother's a pastor, my mm. sister is this kind of uh, Catholic powerhouse over in Walsingham, <laughs> amazing people, but it did not touch me. It, it, I have a mystical heart and I like mysteries and I don't need everything stretched on the rack of mm. exegesis. Mm. And so by the time I was about 17, I left the church and quite honestly, I was receiving more nourishment from myths and stories uh, than I was uh, Western uh, evangelical stuff. And... Even as a child, I remember thinking the figure in the middle of this centrally heated middle-class room is this scandal of a human being. 
Christ was born, as I recall, he's already being searched for. You know, he dies. He dies an outlaw. He's born with, you know, Herod looking for him. Mm. Um, how did I not get the countercultural vitality of this figure? Mm. It had been sort of bled out. Yeah. So I go walk about really, yeah. and so I end up, believe it or not, living on a living on a hill in a tent for four years, unconsciously, I think, trying to get in touch with the soulful life that Christianity didn't seem to quite offer me at that point. Uh, I become a mythologist. I become a storyteller. I'm looking to have a soulful life. But to be honest, the one place I didn't think I'd ever have to look again would be in the tradition of my youth. Mm. However, that doesn't mean that I didn't stay in good relations with my mum and dad and my brother and sister, who are all very keen Christians. Mm. But you can imagine a hiatus of you know, 30, 35 years, that's a, that's a pain in a Christian family yeah. where, yeah. you know, off yeah. I wandered. Yeah. So you were sort of wandering. You were on the side of a mountain for a few years. You were having vigils mm. in the forest. You were establishing this, this sort of career in mythology, storytelling, the West Country School of Myth and so on. And in a sense, you were, I guess you were feeding your soul through that whole period you were kind of learning what what it means to to live in this kind of world of of myth and imagination and so on um was there any clue at any point that this might bring you back in the direction of christianity or was that almost a complete surprise it was a complete surprise um i think what i learned in retrospect from all the myths that i studied was incredible pictures about the experience of living the travails we go through uh, the genius of the human spirit, the cosmologies that have been built all around the world. But what I didn't have was a centering image. I didn't have a figure as strange as Christ. Mm. I found it much easier to relate to someone like Beowulf, a kind of <laughs> heroic figure, mm. than this, this last shall be first character mm. that's wandering around he seems thin-skinned, he seems under pressure, he seems incredibly, and this is a word you won't hear on the programme very often, shamanic. Mm. He's a shamanic figure, he mm. really is. Mm. And by the time you get to the crucifixion, that is, if for those that know what shamanism is, this is it, okay. but in its exaltation. This is okay. what it was always pointing towards. But I didn't know that when I was in my 20s or 30s. I'd had an experience where I had met a Lakota Sioux medicine man called Wallace Black Elk, a healer. Mm. Ironically, he was on a lecture tour over here, and it was a day rather like this one. The weather was like this. And for various reasons, a long story, we needed to heat some rocks up. <laughs> and so we had this fire going. We were going to go into something called a sweat lodge. It's like an incredibly hot sauna. And the clouds come over, and I know they're going to rain. Mm. And I said, Grandpa, it's going to rain. And he said, Maybe. He gets his pipe out, it's a thing called a chinooper, and he aims it at the clouds. And for about 10 minutes, he speaks to that cloud formation as if he's being reunited with a girl he loved when he was 16. Tenderly, inventively, sweetly, he courts clouds. <laughs> and I was watching this as a 23-year-old thinking, I think this is the first human being I've ever seen. This is a real person. He's doing something that's utterly irrational to everyone else, but he felt so connected to the world around him, mm. he could negotiate. Wow. Mm. And then, to my horror, he <laughs> said to me, I don't even come from here. Come on, kid. <laughs> like as if they're yeah. your neighbours. Yeah, yeah. Now, when I, I don't know about you, but when I was 23, my mouth was a place where words went to die. <laughs> they mm. were a kind of prison cell. I trafficked in sarcastic language. Mm -hmm. The rite of passage of becoming a, uh, a grown-up in those days was to speak in a sort of rather embittered, caustic tone. Mm. Yeah. And he was saying, no, beauty matters. So from that point onwards, I was very interested in the notion of how do human beings get made? How do we get made? What constitutes a soulfully alive human being? Uh, and then, to my astonishment, 20 years on from that, this Galilee Druid provides the root, which I didn't have, you see. I had plenty of atmosphere, uh, but I didn't have that, that centering point that I have now. I mean, firstly and foremostly, did it rain? No. 
Absolutely did not rain. Incredible. Um, Did you find yourself, I remember we chatted to Paul Kingsnorth, who in very many ways is your spiritual doppelganger. Um, (laughs) And he said that, you know, because he did, I think, Buddhism, didn't he? And then he did Wicca. And he found himself wanting to worship something, like something, someone. Did you find that as well? Yes, we, we all we all worship something. Where I think wherever we give our most focused attention, it becomes holy almost, which is dangerous in a sense. You've got to be careful what you're mm. you're looking at and what you're filling your, your yourself with. Uh, I've known Paul for a long time. Mm. Oddly, our moves into Christianity, although from the outside they look like two horses at the mm-hmm. same time, we didn't communicate a great deal amount. No way. No, wow. No, it's odd. It's mm. odd. We do now. Yes. Do yeah. Now. Yes. Well, we've heard Paul's story. T- mm. Tell us what happened with you, Martin, because there was a sort of interesting defining moment in there your was, journey. There was. So one of the things that I've been doing since that moment with Wallace Black Elk many years ago is yeah. I became something called a Wilderness Rites of Passage Guide, which is... Um, a four day and night fast in a wild place. Lots of Christians do it. People yeah. interested in the early Christians. Yeah. You go to a place, you empty yourself out, you listen and you pray. It's, it's very simple. Well, I've done a lot of that. So it got to the end of 2019 and I decided to do a 101 day vigil, 101 days. The reason it was so long was I knew that emotionally I would go off the idea after about 20 days, (laughs) and it was a lesson in fidelity. I wanted to see if I could keep coming back, and the lintel of how I felt was not what I was going to regard as the barometer. I was just going to keep turning up to an old English forest where I would listen to it. I know it sounds odd, and I also wanted to tell stories, be quiet, be in that place. Uh, and this extraordinary thing happened on the last night that I would imagine for the rest of my life I'll be turning over and hopefully <laughs> never quite understanding, mm. never quite being able to tell what yep. it is. Yeah, yeah. It's the final night. Uh, the whole process has been much, much more arduous than I expected, and I elect to do an all-night vigil in the middle of the forest, and this is just the, the tying of the bow. There's nothing expected at this very late stage. I've had moments of insight. I've wept over my past life, all of this kind of thing. But I go up into the forest where there is actually an old, the remains actually of an old uh, Iron Age fort, very cold. It was about minus five, I remember. And I'm sitting there in my big North Face parka, (laughs) just down on the ground, waiting for this thing to end. But it is a night of prayer, because I've always prayed. Uh, It's just a little specific as to quite what I was praying to, Mm. but I knew it was a good idea Mm. to give thanks. Mm. I am used to being in forests at night, and what that means is you get used to the sound of animals in a forest, so your vision is always horizontal. You're looking for, you know, or listening for the the movement of a stag or a fox. Mm -hmm. And I don't know why this happened, but my my attention was brought upwards. I wasn't looking on the horizontal anymore. I looked up into the sky. And there was it was one of those beautiful nights where there's little kind of pale blue stars, hundreds of thousands of them. And I said something along the lines of, you know, I'm at the end of this experience of duress and bliss. And if there's anything you really need to show me, this would be a time. And then this thing happened where I look up and I can see one star that's not coloured like the other ones. It's not pale. It doesn't look like a normal star. It's, it's a beautiful collision of colours, almost like the Aurora Borealis, not quite. And I think, that's weird, it's getting bigger. And it's moving quite quickly. What I'm describing to you takes place over, you know, seconds, really. Mm. And then I think, goodness me, it's, it's, it's sort of, falling out of the sky and it's taking a shape and the shape the thing took was um it was a bit like uh, the tip of an arrow mm-hmm. it was like that with these colors across it these beautiful sort of etheric colors and i suddenly realized it was going to land just into the ground about 15 yards to my right and it did and it was utterly silent 
It was utterly silent. There was no sound. Just through the woods into the ground. Um, it wasn't frightening, which is strange because mm. you can get some spooky stuff out in the woods in the, in the mm. wee small hours. Yeah. I can imagine. This was absolutely <laughs> not like that. This was properly Old Testament. And I thought it at that time, which was my first, <laughs> my only concern was that something so extraordinary had happened that I, 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 it would be no problem for me at all for somebody to come along and explain it away scientifically. Mm. I wouldn't be upset by that at all. I know what I know and I know what I saw and it mm. happened at a particular moment. So just to reiterate, I pray, I look up and out of the sky falls this beautiful painted arrow of colours and just disappears into the ground of the forest. It's gone. There's no mm. smell, nothing. I was so thrilled and heartened by it. I danced for the rest of the night, and I'm no kind of dancer, <laughs> just like a, a shuffling dance, an old the middle-aged man dance. You <laughs> yeah. know? And then I walked back down the hill to the cottage where I lived, and I got into bed, uh, and as I was getting into bed, suddenly nine words forced themselves into my mind. I had no control over it. Inhabit the time and genesis of your original home. Inhabit the time and genesis of your original home. Again, there's a bump in that. I still don't quite know what, what it was, but I knew I didn't like the word genesis. I knew that was very odd. Yeah. And with that, I fell asleep. And for 18 months, I ruminated because the next day, lockdown began. <laughs> oh, oh, wow. If only okay. I'd synced them up, but I didn't know it was going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I had a lot of time on my own. And even then, I didn't quite. Candidly, I didn't quite connect the dots. Mm. I just knew that I had gone into the forest expecting to be wedded to the wild and I'd come out wedded to Christ. And both of them were kind of simpatico. It's, it's very hard mm. for me to wow. put things like this into conventional language. Yeah. Well, you're doing very well. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, bless you. Yeah. Um, where did the wedded to Christ, where did your mind set Oh, this is Jesus. This is the. This is. This isn't I, abstract. This yeah, is. No. This has a name. Good. He has a yeah, name. Well, well, good question. Somehow, somehow, I knew. Mm. <laughs> I knew. I knew. And do you know what it's? What's interesting about it is one of the things I've had to adapt to as a Christian is to move from, you know, venerating and appreciating a God that moves through all of creation rocks, rivers, trees, yeah. and a being that also stands outside of creation, even mm. outside of the universe, mm. can do both at once, mm. is in there with us. Mm. I mean, the wonderful thing for me about God is that God has a dog in the race, <laughs> his own son. You know, mm. He has a dog mm. in the race. Mm. There aren't many mythological figures that go, <laughs> guess what? I'm going to put my son in this mosh pit right. and see what happens to him. Never and it's the that. most extraordinary act mm. of love. Yeah. So catastrophic in its beauty, we're still mm. in shock mm. 2,000 years later. Uh, you know, what a swoon. But anyway, to answer your question was, I knew, but I didn't want to know. <laughs> I knew, but I didn't want to know. And I, had, I called it the mossy face of Christ. You know, it was something that I was going to, I was just going to, I needed time to, yeah, yeah. I needed time. Was that partly because there's a certain humility involved in coming back to the, genesis of your time at home as it were that it was you didn't want to crawl back go back to something that you felt was inhibiting in that sense because the as you say the picture you had of christianity growing up didn't seem to be a freeing soul feeding thing no. but you knew that this was what you were being asked to go into but obviously you were going to discover discover it anew in that sense yes and i i mean you know Paul of Tarsus went awfully quiet, didn't he, for a bit before he becomes Paul that we know. Now, I do not compare myself to Paul, if N.T. Wright is listening, you know. But, but I understand, like, a big thing. Yeah. A big thing shuts you up. Yeah. And a big thing shut me up. Yeah. That's what yeah. happened. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you suddenly have no, uh, what would be the word, you know, you there's no handrails yeah. in an experience like this. And clearly... This is not a slow, a slow intellectual exercise mm. that brought me back into the fold. Mm. This is an absolutely extraordinary encounter with forces mm. I barely have words for. Mm. But 
the thing that I think I was aware of at the time is I thought maybe it was as if God had done this to me till I was 50 and then mm-hmm. went, now, now, mm-hmm. I want you to see me now. Mm. And by the time it happened, you see, I had all of these languages at my yeah. disposal that I'd never have at Upton Vale Baptist Church. Yeah. I wouldn't think mm-hmm. in that way. I wouldn't be shaped in that way. What would those churches, what would Spring Harvest have done to <laughs> William Blake? Think on, you know? It's, it's, it's a shocker. Now, it's not that these things, these places aren't productive sure. and wonderful in their yeah. way, but there are artists out there and there are people that think in strange yeah. ways and they yeah. see the face of God in animals and mm. like Wallace Blackout, you know. Mm. Wallace said a thing to me, though, in the sweat lodge. He leaned forward and he said, he said, don't give up on the hippie guy. <laughs> and he said he was here too, talking about Christ. Yeah. And he said, he hasn't given up on you. Don't give up on him. Wow. And again, I just didn't want to hear that. Did you lose any respect, though, in the course of putting a name and a person into the picture? Because in a sense, I think up to that point, you were able to be sort of quite general. You know, it was quite numinous. You, you didn't have to land in a particular postcode, as no, you say. No, Did kind of saying, okay, turns out that there is a face and yeah. a name to yeah. this thing. Did it lose you a few friends along the way? <laughs> yes, it did. And it was, it was worse than anger, disappointment. Yeah. Oh, just, that is I'm weird. Just, I'm yeah. not angry. I'm disappointed. <laughs> and... Uh, I yes, it was the climate has changed rapidly, but okay. actually then there was no safety net mm. for what I was going to do. But even reading the gospels, I knew that that was something Christ never provides that. Mm. He never mm. provides those kinds of insurance policies. He raises the bar so high, mm. uh, you know, it's it's one way or the other. Mm. And so I knew I knew the stakes, and I'd seen it in my own family's lives. But I, yes, I lost. Um, I lost people that were interested in publishing me. I lost a couple of close friendships. Most heartbreakingly for me, uh, friends of mine in First Nations, Native American communities said, "Come on, you know this is this is the religion of Trump. Mm. These are mm. this is just a a colonial expression of people that hate women, mm. hate nature, hate everything mm. that isn't just this." extroverted me 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 thing mm. uh terrible so so that was a lot of wallop to take in those fledgling months and where where did you find a community though that could you could share that that new journey with well i was sort of reluctant to come out of the woods to be honest <laughs> because uh, yeah, I, I thought you know there's a lot going on in here yeah. um but i knew i knew the notion that you know uh you want to find a room in the house, in the in the church building and i'd been to see the baptists and i liked the baptists and i'd been to see the catholics and i liked the catholics i'd been to see the anglicans and i liked the anglicans it was all very nice but i don't need nice i just don't need it uh i need something a bit uh more exacting uh, something that demands more of me, mm. something that is not taking its cues from a culture that does not care for it. Mm. Uh, and I found that in in Eastern Orthodoxy. Uh, I was wandering around a shopping centre, believe it or not, in Exeter, <laughs> and in the middle of the shopping centre, there's no roof to this thing, there was this old red stone building. It's the oldest Christian building in Exeter, and I just happened to walk in in the middle of something called Divine Liturgy. Mm. And... It was the transformative church Christian yeah. experience of my life. Uh, I had a, there was a father who didn't seem remotely interested in how I was doing. Um, I grew up, you see, with a very intimate version of Jesus. How are you doing? Yeah. You're all right. Yeah. You know, you're tired. Let it out. Let it out. The you seeker know. sensitive Jesus. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, all of this. It was just one <laughs> long back rub. And suddenly, now, in poetry, you see, this sounds a bit abstract, but stay with me. In poetry, you have lipic, lyric and eric epic poems. Mm. Lyric poems are very personal, confessional, me, yeah. me, me. Epic is when your story gets amplified into something much bigger. And I think, I wonder in the West if we've had an awful lot of lyric Christianity, mm. and I'm really done with it. Mm. Uh, it's not that I don't want an intimate relationship with Jesus, but there's just something in there that's beginning. 
it, it's, it never worked for me. Whereas the orthodox thing, which seems from the outside probably a bit more remote, rather strange, um, it actually it feeds me in a different type of way. Mm. Uh, and the liturgy of it, the beauty of it, I grew up in a Christianity that I think was a bit suspicious of beauty. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> not sure about the old beauty. Could be leading you to hell, you know. Uh, whereas actually I think, you know, Jesus sprinkled a lot of Christ, God, sprinkled a lot of beauty yeah. into this world for us to enjoy. Yeah. So anyway, the long story is uh, I I found a home with orthodoxy. Um, yeah, and, and interestingly, it had, Paul Kingsnorth is over in Ireland with the Romanians. Um, I'm of a sort of a, a Russian variety, mm-hmm. not a popular moment with mm-hmm, that. Mm-hmm. And um, it just keeps feeding me and keeps getting deeper. Wow. Mm. I am having so much fun. <laughs> I keep forgetting <laughs> that I'm supposed to be asking you questions. <laughs> I could just sit and soak it up all afternoon. Um, when you say it's feeding you, it's yeah. still feeding you, there's obviously so much about you that... It's like your your heart has been softened by experiential experiences, for want of a better word. Um, how have you partnered that up with an intellectual seeking and an intellectual feeding? Yes. Um, well, actually, I I do. I mean, I'm a natural. You know, I I have I've done a PhD and all of that. I'm yeah. well versed in theology and philosophy and all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um. Interestingly, Father Beforeus, who is my spiritual father, said, don't go too quickly with that. Mm. He said, let's not. He said, that stuff can in the end defend you against having a religious experience. (laughs) If you have a propensity, which I do, to hit the books and to start nutting it all out too quick, you are very quickly standing at a distance from something that a minute ago you were firmly Mm. in the grip of. Mm. I... uh, I read a lot of uh, Russian theologians from the mid-20th century who were all on the run from the communists and all ended up in Paris at the same time at a particular seminary. Uh, Their work is not very well known over here, but it's it's tremendously nourishing. Also a great emphasis on Sophia. So wisdom and feminine mm-hmm. principles and things like that that I'm I'm interested in. Mm. Uh, so that's what I do. Mm. I don't just wander around in in the euphoria of the divine liturgy much as I'd <laughs> like to. Yeah, that does sound like a dream. I mean, you you described that when you had this moment, and Paul Kingsnorth had a rather similar journey, as you said. Uh, it it was uncharted territory at that point, but you've noticed in the last few years suddenly a lot of other people coming out of the woodwork talking in similar ways, not necessarily having quite the same experience, but suddenly it's not completely crazy to talk in the way you've just talked, in the way that you might have been laughed out of the room Oh yes, 10 or 15 years ago. Yes. So what are you seeing around you? You know, it's happening so fast. Things have changed in two years. Okay. Things have changed. So I was laughed out of the room two years ago. And, of course, now you get figures of, of as much cultural significance as Nick Cave mm. saying, yeah, of course I go to church. I'm friends with Rowan Williams, et cetera, mm. et cetera. And you realise, my goodness, something profound is going on. And it's happening on these different levels. You've got a, a Tom Holland or you've got a Jordan Peterson uh, who are dancing terribly near the kingdom of heaven, (laughs) even if their intellect is defending them from the final submersion. Mm. So that's stimulating. That's Mm. interesting. Mm. And then out where the buses don't park, you've got me in Kings North (laughs) holding up the the signs of wonder's end. Um, And um, I know which hand I'd rather. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so I'm, I'm, one of the things I feel compelled, actually, I said this, I was at Greenbelt. You'll know Mm. what Greenbelt Mm. is. Mm. I feel something is happening. I don't know what it is, and I feel it's very rare I get a spiritual tap on the shoulder. I do want to put this out, Mm. and it's specifically for people that are older in churches, people that are over the age of 60. In whatever is happening, don't be passive with it. Mm. Don't feel that this is something for the youngsters. And we saw the charismatic movement. We were with John Wimber. We Mm -hmm. saw all of that. We need elder folk within this process. It can't just be a sort of sibling mm. experience. Mm. And I can't be much clearer than that, yeah. but 
this is what I said, don't let yourself off the hook for the older folks in churches. I mean, many people's journeys have been likened to C.S. Lewis at various points who sort of had a, an intellectual and experiential journey. What, what strikes me as interesting in terms of perhaps some overlap of your story with, with Lewis's is that he too knew his mythology, he knew his stories from history, and there was a significant moment, obviously, when he put that together with the help of J.R.R. Tolkien, when he was able to see that Christ Jesus was the true myth, the, the, the one in whom all those mythologies of the past and even the future would only be echoes of, of this true myth. Does that ring any yeah. bells with what your experience has been? It, yes, it does. The myth made fact. Mm. That's, that's how I, I suppose we would think of it. Uh, every time you look at your modern life and you see a mythic thread in it, that is a myth-made fact. It, it happens a lot, but it happens as a Christian. It happens uh, in in the most startling form in the in the years of Christ's life. As I said, born a fugitive, dies an outlaw. Estranged. I mean, people don't like to talk about this, but he's not always chiming with his own family. Mm-hmm. Even his own family is struggling. You know, yeah. mm. this is a this is not an Olympian wandering around. Now, just to clear something up in terms of mythology in Christ. What you get from sceptics is they will tell you that there's a kind of infrastructure to Christ's life that you find in, say, Odin Mm -hmm. or Egyptian gods or maybe even in Dionysus. Now, here's the thing. There is an architecture which you can recognise. What you have that is completely unique in the life of Jesus is where where the rubber hits the road is what he said. It's what he taught. Mm. It's what he went through. There are no other gods like that. There's no other god that has a dog in the race like our one. Mm. And so that's the important thing. It is, and Lewis and Tolkien would agree with this, it's as if you're getting divine glimpses. It's like warm-up events, Mm. pinpricks Mm. of eternity through other, other spiritualities and mythologies that suddenly breaks into time and space in a way we understand and you get this extraordinary thing happen. But you've got to be careful because uh, there's a, a resurgence of interest, for example, in Jungian psychology, partially mm. through Jordan Peterson and others. That's all well and good, and I know it back to front. Mm-hmm. But Christ is not an archetype, just to be clear. He's <laughs> not just a figure. He's not this just sort of he has opinions, he has thoughts, he struggles. We have to deal as Christians with the strangeness that he's completely human and completely God, mm. and all of that is going on. So one of the concerns, I think, as the wider conversations opens, is not to uh, is not to thin him out to a point where he just becomes a sort of, um, you know, one of a, a tapestry of interesting figures. Yes. Otherwise, there's no point in that. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I've been interested in that recently as well. And this idea of, which is interesting, but God is at the highest value. And I'm like, well, that's quite interesting, but he's not the highest value, is he? He's he's God. He's, you know. <laughs> yes, yeah. this, this is a language that's often used, especially, you know, by Peterson, this Jungian, mm. the, the highest value in your hierarchy of values or whatever. And I, I, I have a very similar feeling to you there, Martin, that, mm, yeah, well, it's it's one way of looking at God. And there might be some psychological value, but that's certainly not the end of the story, right? No, no, no. Well, that, that's just a lot of enchantment for me. That's, if you know what I mean, like that's, anyway, I won't go there. Um, when you, could you just break what you just said open for us a little bit in that, what is it, could you give an example of what is it about Jesus as a mythologist where you get to it and you're like, oh, hang on, that that breaks archetype. That's not what I'm expecting. That's not what we've been told to are there examples yeah, of where Jesus you... is quite disorienting? Yes, I will. In, first of all, one of the words that are being banded about a lot these days is the word pagan. You know, yeah. there, is a, there is a sense somehow that we're, there's, there's a sort of a, new, uh, a, a paganism amok amongst us. But I say, uh, like C.S. Lewis said, oh, bright vision. Were it so? Because really, most of us need to become pagans for a while to become Christians. <laughs> I like the idea we might be living in a uh, pre-Christian society. Yes. I wonder uh, if we haven't really given it a crack yet. Rather than post-Christian, <laughs> yeah. pre-Christian. We'll have to change yeah. our intro. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, but going back, going back to um, 
what you were saying, which was? Disorienting. Disorienting. Mm. Yes, yes, here we are. So in Homer's Odyssey, there's a moment where this main character, Odysseus, goes to the underworld and mm. he has a conversation with Achilles around mm-hmm. Pitt. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And he says to he says to Achilles, "How are you doing down in the underworld? How's this working out for you?" Yeah. And Achilles says, "Sooner be slave to a poor man than king of the underworld. It means nothing." And what he means by this is very important. It's this word "kleos." Kleos in the Greek Greco-Roman pagan world means imperishable glory, and in a pagan world, mm-hmm. imperishable glory is the thing that you want. Now, the interesting thing about Kleos is that it, you can't just have it in yourself. You can't just feel good about yourself and say, I have Kleos, I have imperishable glory. It has to be given to you. Mm. The reason it's so important is it's the one things that humans have that the gods do not because they never die. So they don't mm-hmm. need imperishable glory. Okay. The pathos, and you find this in all the Greek myths, the pathos is always with the human characters. It's never with the gods. Mm. The gods are there for comic value. They're there to be frightening. But never, ever does a god give you the Sermon on the Mount. Never, ever do you hear the Beatitudes. Mm. And when you hear that stuff, the hair just starts to go up on the back of your neck because you're hearing something that seems so countercultural, so counterintuitive yes. to the way we are designed to behave mm-hmm. seemingly mm-hmm. in a dog eat dog world. Yeah. So, right there and then. So, I always say you hear a foreshadowing of Christ in the middle of the Odyssey. The last shall be first. As soon as Achilles, who's the greatest Kleos of all, says, Do you know what? This isn't working for me anymore. <laughs> you can hear. The Druid is coming. I love mm. it. You, you've started to write a book, mm. which we'd love to have you back to talk about when, Actually, when it comes you. out. But as I understand it, it's on the dream of Christianity. Yes. Could you tell us about that? Yeah, it, it works with the premise that Christianity has forgotten that it's a dream. Okay. And it's not the kind of dream when you've eaten too much cheese. <laughs> it's not the kind of dream where you're talking to your mother and she becomes a sofa. Yeah. It's the kind of dream that you have when you wake up and say, I have to change my life. Mm-hmm. I think that Christianity, I said this earlier on, has become so cautious. It's become, not just sounding too blanket, but, but, but it has become when you are taking your cues from a culture that has amnesia or hostility to you, you're lost. You're just mm-hmm. absolutely lost. You're selling the farm. And so the book really is about the notion that Christianity could remember it's a dream again. So C.S. Lewis, who we mentioned earlier, has a great image in his first book, Pilgrim's Regress, first book of prose anyway, mm-hmm. where he says Christianity in the way we understand it has several components, that we walk the road of the Jewish people, but also alongside that are some of the really big pictures that what he calls the landlord was put into the minds of the pagans, and it's this combination. Mm. And from that comes what Lewis calls Mother Kirk. But tied in with this arrangement, almost uh, inevitably, is every few hundred years, Mother Kirk starts to sort of collapse on herself, and the landlord starts to bring the big pictures back, and people start to talk, and from the depths of the ashes, a little green shoot comes, and the church refines itself again. But there's always plenty of drama in mm. the process. Mm. Well, I read that and I thought, you know, I would, I would slightly uh, tune up what Lewis said, actually. I, I don't think it's pictures. I think it's dreams. And I think that in the Middle Ages, a dream would have been chivalry, the mm. notion of noblesse oblige, that if you are noble you have to act noble that's a christian ideal that's not Mm. a pagan notion Mm. the pagan notion is kleos Mm. and that is why we are beginning to live in a pagan age again Mm. because we live in an age of imperishable glory Mm. and the gods that we worship in the place we put our attention is here 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 we are ourselves talking back to ourselves Mm. there's no god code there's no service code there's nothing that is bigger than us Mm. and that is going to make you absolutely miserable. (laughs) So the book that I am writing is 
is bringing everything that I've learned about the process of trying to get made as a human being, everything that I've learned about mythology and story, and finally bringing it to the story I could not bear to tell. <laughs> That's what the book is. Yeah. There's so much to ask you about that. There's so many questions. I think what, when you dream in particular, what I find really interesting about the biblical authors, although this is, you know, that spans centuries, so I'm really sweeping, but is that, in those places, those visionary places, those dreams, those visions, those out-of-body experiences, there's a real sense in, Bibli in the Bible, in biblical literature, that those are the places we trust. Mm. Because that, it's in those places that our biases and our baggage, our perspectives, our experiences are parked. And we can, and like God can get to us. He can bypass those things. And of course, that's not not that's not in the air we breathe now i don't think so that's that weird dream in particular mm. is really interesting and dream being different to vision mm. now mm. the evangelicals are very good at vision yeah. <laughs> they're very good at mobilize yeah but dreaming is different dreaming is uncorralled mm. dreaming is wild Dreaming is holy and it can come from a source that you didn't nut out over a table yeah. on a laptop in Hoxton. Yeah. Something else happened. Now, the book deals with, in its later stages, without giving too much of the plot spoiler, how in the end do you move from a dream to a vision? Yeah. How do you do, how, do, how, does, how does discipline become the dance partner of wildness? Mm. How do we do that? Uh, and that's something that I do. And one of the things that I do do is I go through the Bible and I look at great dreaming stories. For mm. example, remember, of course, Joseph and his funky coat. Mm -hmm. And yeah. he has these extraordinary dreams that irritate his brothers, even <laughs> irritate his father. And he says, <laughs> didn't I do well? <laughs> and we all know he has to go through a living hell yeah. in Egypt yeah. until finally... The prophecy of the dream takes place, but you never would have expected the underworld he's going to have to go through mm. to get to that moment. And I wonder about that in our lives. I think, did you, when you were younger, did you have glimpses of the life that may be ahead? Mm. But very few of us would have had any ideas of the Egypt we would have to pass through to get there. And this idea that Mother Kirk has to collapse and yeah. be reborn every few hundred years... So presumably you think we might be reaching that collapse point now? Well, put it this way, um, you know, it's it, my Catholic friends are troubled at the right. moment. My evangelical friends and Anglican friends are troubled in their own way. Uh, it's not sunshine and light over in the Orthodox world either. Uh -huh. You know, I think individual parishes can be very healthy, mm. but there's just something about power and Christianity that is trouble. Mm. If we're in this process, if maybe we are starting to see the church start to melt down and mm. in God's grace, perhaps something new emerge. Are you and some of these other people we've talked about, are they, are they part of this dreaming process? Is this the, the, a moment when we, something new is being fed in, some new pictures, some new dreams from God? What? Yes, that's exactly what I think. Yeah. That's exactly right. And it's, it's something that I said a minute ago, though, is I think not to fetishize the one that's holding the microphone. It's why I said, you know, if you're in your church and over 60, well, you've been there for a while. Mm. You know, you've got past the beginner's luck that me and Paul and a few others have. <laughs> you're in the difficult, you, you've been out in the desert with Christ by this point, not just in the oasis, skipping around. Mm. You've passed the honeymoon phase. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so, so I think if this, if this could be a restorative movement, which I think it would, I'd ask everybody to try and take agency of it. Uh, yeah. Oh. Mm. On your website, there's an amazing quote about you from Rowan Williams. And if he said anything half as nice about me ever, <laughs> I would die happy. He said that you are a true and transformative enchanter, which is why you are the perfect guest on Reenchanting. But I think... Firstly, I would, as a enchanter, I would love to get a sort of a cultural read from you on this whole re-enchantment that we sort of feel in the air and you've definitely touched upon it. Um, but also how, if, if you were speaking to those people, uh, either who are in church and have been in for a while um, or who aren't and they're in a place sort of where you have been, where they think I'm seeking and I'm seeking and I just, I don't know where I'll find it, but I know where I won't. <laughs> and that's Christianity. 
what would be your advice about re-enchanting, re-enchanting the wildness, the dream of Christianity? How do we do that? Well, we should become saints again, or we should try to become mm. saints. Because a saint, in one of the earliest understandings of it, was somebody by, by the time you left their presence, you felt different. You yeah. felt different. Forget levitation. <laughs> Forget all, all, the, all the ornamental stuff about a saint. A saint is somebody that, that, that doesn't just give you hope, they give you rigor and they give you excitement. And so actually one of the places we could go would to be, you know, the what I call Christian wonder, wonder tales. They're very ecological, actually. They've been abandoned. People don't take them seriously. But there's this amazing body of teaching you get, especially in Ireland. The thing about Ireland is when Christianity arrived there, it didn't arrive on the tip of a sword. It arrived on the tip of a tongue. Mm. There was no invading force mm. for Christianity in Ireland. So mm. it arrives as a conversation. Isn't that amazing? Mm. It arrives as a thought. Yeah. Even though in Druidic circles they prophesied it, they said the big Druid's coming, so get ready. Wow. And they were kind of ready. The Irish were like, yeah, we're ready for this, let's do it. But they, you, in Ireland you have green martyrhood, not red. Right. And the green martyrhood was people going out and becoming hermits. So I'm attracted to those old ideas again, actually, of, you know, uh, in orthodoxy we call it theosis. It's, you know, moving slowly in your stumbling way, you fall into the mind of God, as Paul says it. So mm. I think as Christians, we're, we're so frightened of vainglory. Mm. I know that I am. I'm in a terrible profession in terms of my own uh, leaning into vanity. Mm. You know, it's a real thing. I've just been on tour for a month and I mm. was like this all the way through because you, it's, it, Jesus talks about it a lot. Mm. You know, pride is yep. a real thing. Yep. So, but the trouble is you can then end up uh, so meek and mild that you don't proceed in this world as if you matter at all. Mm. Uh, and that's why my kind of cry for older Christians who may be sort of moving towards the retirement end saying, mm. you know what, there may mm. be a last mm. hurrah. There may be something that you're seeing that, that us younger ones are not. Um, so that would be a thought. I, I guess the thing that I sort of finally come to as, as we start to draw this together is you – you don't want to kind of put this in a box, in a sense. Uh, you don't want to turn what you're describing into a 12-step program for how do we basically get this mission back on track and, you know, re-evangelize the world or whatever. And that, it, it, it feels like you want to hold this lightly, that, that when you call it a dream, you're saying, let's, let's not try and turn it into something. Let's just see what happens and let's give ourselves permission to just tell stories, to, to sort of, be imaginative almost well, in this you moment. You know, don't tell anybody, but I do have a lot of time for the charismatics. Don't keep <laughs> just between us. Even it, though it, I'm it won't go further than us <laughs> two and the so people listening. I, I don't I don't I don't care for the worship music <laughs> and the rest of it, to be honest. But that sense that you get with the early Christians uh -huh. of dynamic, exciting, plenty of Holy Spirit in the room. The thing about orthodoxy for me is it has that, but it also has this incredible runway mm. for the Holy Spirit to land in, which for me is the liturgy. Mm. Mm. So I, I do try to handle it lightly because I'm just, a, I'm, I'm not, I'm not the repository of, of great wisdom, but I'm, I'm looking at it, yeah. you know, mm. uh, and, and that's where we all are. So you sell a lot more books, Justin, if, if you say 12 steps yeah. towards rewilding Christianity. Mm. But that will date, yes. you know. The, it'll it'll date it. And uh, one of the things I'm being trying, I'm, <laughs> but you know, weaving and bobbing with the book that I'm writing is that it isn't just you know rewildingchristianity.com. It's got to last longer yeah. than that, I think. Mm. However, the sentiment behind it, I do understand. Mm. Birds need to be released from their cages. Mm. I think. Mm. Mm. Well, I agree with Rowan Williams. You are, in fact, sure a are. true Thank enchanter you. form with an enchanter. <laughs> and um, I've enjoyed this so much, I've too often forgotten that I'm supposed to be a part of it. <laughs> oh, you, that, That's a good sign, <laughs> yeah, isn't it? Yeah, that's a great and, sign. Yeah, with so much more we, we, we could have chatted around. Yeah. But um, you, you give me a lot of hope, Martin, oh. not only because of your personal story, which, of course, is very encouraging at one level, but because, I don't know, there's just something about saying... 
this story is sort of unstoppable. It's yeah. it's like we we can do what we can do with our little point, but there's an epic story here. Yeah, you know, it. I love that that's that it. lyric and epic yeah. mm. um, poetry and story. And um, yeah, and I guess my my hope and prayer is that we'll just play whatever part we're given in it. I I agree, and I would just say for anybody watching this to take courage. We are living in extraordinary times. Peril is ever present, but mm -hmm. so is wonder. Mm -hmm. So is wonder. Job teaches us that. You know, our wonder eyes should be open. And uh, could you imagine if Christians said, you know what, we're going to be praise makers. We're going to be praise makers. We're going to go out into this world and find things that seek to be admired because our screens are keeping us in a state of almost perpetual semi-nervous breakdown at the mm -hmm. moment. Mm -hmm. We're receiving so much bad news so incessantly than our than our, our, our retina. I feel like the devil has got his hands on our retinas <laughs> at the moment. And it's an, a remarkable thing to do, to just go for a walk, find something that, as I said, is seeking to be admired by you. Give it 12 secret names. <laughs> give, give, talk to God in 12 secret ways. You know, just open up Jesus of the imagination. <laughs> That's what I think. Well, thank you so much, Martin, yeah. for re-enchanting re us, re-enchanting the dream of Christianity. God bless you. You too.